so we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount uh, over the last uh, many weeks, uh, and I can say with confidence that I was ready to teach this three weeks ago uh, when I thought I had uh, two more weeks left, uh, and uh, I was wrong because Chris had communicated to me what the schedule was, uh, and I was out of time. Uh, so I was ready three weeks ago, um, and I... I have not studied much since then. Uh, I've gone over my notes this afternoon. We're going to see how this goes. I'm not exactly winging it, but, um, you know, it's going to be okay. Uh, let's go ahead and get started. We, we, uh, we had uh, just stopped uh, at Matthew 6, 25. Um, and I want to stop and do a quick recap. Uh, and I'd like to share... Um, just a couple of things. One, uh, I, I think that you'll notice that uh, as Jesus has been uh, kind of uh, working his way, right, through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he has been talking about a few different things. One, philosophy, right, the idea of what, what do you have in your head uh, when you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? What does your, what does your, um, your belief system about the world look like? Uh, Right. Fundamentally, philosophy is about the idea of what, what does it mean to live a good life. The, uh, Aristotle called it the eudaimonian, the good life. What, what, what does living a meaningful, purposeful life look like? Uh, and Jesus told us, right, in the, the first 12, 13 verses of the Sermon on the Mount, he, he pauses right, right there and says, it's not what you think it look, what What you think the good life looks like isn't what the good life looks like. The people who are living the good life are people who have poverty of spirit, right? They recognize that within themselves there is not the means to save them. Uh, they're people who are mourning. They're, they're people who are merciful. They're people who are um, peacemakers, right? And he goes through, and at each point, uh, it is, it's the opposite of what the world's ethic says that somebody who is living the good life will look like. Right? The good life in the world is living for oneself. Right? It's um, espousing virtues that make you strong, uh, that make you uh, powerful, that make you self-sufficient. And Jesus offers up instead uh, an ethic about living the good life that says, no, you live in community with one another. And your attitude towards yourself is that it is, it is submerged right, underneath uh, and given to the glory of the Father. Uh, and then he talks about action, right? And he, he does that by unpacking what the law means, right? He says that these are the antitheses. We, we went through these. Uh, and in each case, there are six of them. He says, you've heard it said X, but I say Y, right? You've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. Um, but I say, I say unto you, don't even be angry without a cause, um, and then he gives a bunch of examples about how, how you should uh, reconcile with people that you're angry with. Uh, you've heard it said, uh, he ends with, you've heard it said uh, that um, you should love your neighbor and, and hate your enemy. Why well, say unto you, love your enemy. Love even those who hate you, right, and despitefully use you. Um, so uh, he is... He's, going, he's moving from philosophy and into action, right? And he's describing what you ought to do uh, in light of that. And, and the other thing he says is when you act, right, uh, act in the name of the Father publicly, openly, 
right? But when you, but when you do good works, uh, don't, don't do them for your own glory, for your own playoffs, right? Don't do them so that people will know who you are, right? And he gives the three examples of the, the Jewish, uh, of Jewish sort of sacramental life, prayer, fasting, and alms. And he says, and when you do those things, don't, don't do them like the hypocrites do that, so that people can see them. Uh, and it, it, that, that's also about an attitude that informs your actions, right? Um, I, I thought about this distinction between uh, action and philosophy. Uh, I, I've been reading a ton recently by a, a guy who was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. His name's G.K. Chesterton. Uh, you can look him up. He was maybe 20 years older than Lewis was. Uh, he died in 1937. And he was mostly a journalist, uh, and he wrote a ton of essays about a variety of things. Uh, and there's this, uh, this wonderful, wonderful passage uh, in uh, his book, Heretics, where he talks about uh, action and philosophy and how they're joined together. And he says, everything that you do, right, you, you should you should think, what is informing this action? Like, what's the philosophy behind it? Uh, and and I, I'm going to read you this passage, one, because I think it's cool, but I also think it's important in light of, of us returning again to the Sermon on the Mount. The purpose of reading this passage again and again and again, as many people do, is to understand the core tenets of the kingdom of heaven. What's it like to live in the kingdom of heaven? Because if, if you can think about what Jesus's principles are, what lies behind the law, right? Jesus uh, reduced the law to, to two things, right? Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? The, on, on these things, the law and the prophets hang. Right? That, that's a summary of the law by Jesus. If you can see behind the Sermon on the Mount to the principles that Jesus is talking about, and you can keep that in your head as you live your daily life, uh, you will live a fulfilled and purposeful life. Let me read this passage. So uh, Chesterton is here talking about um, the idea that, that people in his age, uh, and it hadn't gotten any better, uh, are poisoned with action. They want to act all the time. Uh, that they, they, he said, you know, his, his age is very turbulent. People want uh, rapid, successive, swift change all the time. And they don't think about why they're doing it. They don't discuss why they're doing it. In fact, they find it boring to talk about why they're doing it. Um, and I, I couldn't read, help but read this passage and think about the, the course of the last year uh, with people uh, tearing down statues in our, our major city centers and kind of acting out. If if Chesterton lived in an age of, of furious action, we live in an age that's like that times 10. So let me read this. Suppose that a great commotion in the, there, suppose that a great commotion arises in the street about something. Let us say it's a lamppost, which many influential persons desire to pull down. A gray-clad monk who is the spirit of the Middle Ages, so he's been saying, in the Middle Ages, uh, everything was boring and people had a long time to think about things. So everybody thought about, okay, what's our philosophy or our idea of things? Uh, so this monk shambles out and he begins to say in the dry manner of the schoolman, 
Let us first of all, my brethren, consider the value of light. If light be in itself good, at this point he is somewhat excusably knocked down and beaten up. All the people make a rush for the lamppost. The lamppost is down in ten minutes, and they go about congratulating each other on their unmedieval practicality. But as things go on, they do not work out so easily. Some people have pulled the lamppost down because they wanted electric light. Some because they wanted iron. Some because they wanted darkness because their deeds were evil. Some thought it was not enough of a lamppost and some too much. Some acted because they wanted to smash municipal machinery. Some because they just wanted to smash something. And now there is war in the night, no man knowing whom he strikes. So gradually and and inevitably... Today, tomorrow, or the next day, there comes back the conviction that the monk was right after all, and that everything depends on what we think of light. Only what we might have discussed under the gas lamp, we now have to discuss in the dark. I think that's a, one, it's just good writing, uh, but also it's, it's kind of a profound warning for us as Christians, right? We, th- there is a tendency in our churches to become wrapped up in programs and ministries and uh, you know, choir and teaching and all these things that we have going on, activities all the time. We are a rush of furious activity because we mirror the culture that we live in. And sometimes it makes, ten- it makes sense to slow things down, to look at the word, right, and, and to read a portion of it and understand, well, what's the philosophy that informs this action? What, what are we trying to achieve? Um, so I, I think it's very important, again, that we return over and over and over again to the, to the words of the Sermon on the Mount because they inform us, like, what's the purpose uh, behind what we're doing? Okay, let's turn to verse 25 of chapter 6. So he's talked about philosophy, he's talked about action, now he's going to talk about attitude. And he says, therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. So what's the attitude uh, of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Well, I would say it's an attitude of surrender, right? It is is so tempting uh, and so... central to some of our identities to worry about things. Uh, it's, some days that's all I do, right? I, get, I, uh, I, I told the joke last time, right? I said, 
I just need to get through this week. Um, I said every week since I was 12. Um, like, that's the way we live, right? Um, and it's, it's um, the attitude that comes from, sorry, there's, I swear I'm not hallucinating. There's stuff floating in front of my face. Um, the attitude that, that stems from, one, knowing what the citizens of the kingdom of heaven look like, right? It's not always going to be, uh, it's not always going to be a bed of roses, right? Things will be sad. You will be persecuted, right? If, if you listen to him, yeah, that's, that's the promise that he makes, is that you, you will be persecuted if you, you follow the way and sublimate yourself. Like, you, you must decrease so that I can increase. And if you do that, people will know you're different. People will understand that, and, and they won't like it necessarily, right? It, this is not the way to a conventional good life. It's the way to an eternal good life. Um, if you have that frame of reference, that, that, uh, that sense of yourself in comparison to God, uh, and your, that sense of yourself as a, a, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and you act in accord with that, the attitude that you must ultimately take on is that you are not in charge of your own stuff, right? That, that if, if God is greater than you and you are in service to him, you are an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven, all you can do is give your problems to him. That's all you can do. Right? It, it is a recognition. I, I, I won't keep bringing up Chesterton, but there's this wonderful parable that he has in one of his books where there are these two kids uh, and one of them, um, or, and they are offered the chance to make a wish, and I won't go through all the mechanics of how that happens, but in the, the story, one of them is given a chance to make a, or both of them are given a chance to make a wish, and one of them says, I wish I was so big that I could walk from the Appalachians to the Himalayas in a day. I wish I was a giant. And so he says, the wish grantor makes him a giant, uh, and when he's a giant, he finds everything is flat right, because everything has been compressed because he's so big, and he walks from the Appalachians all the way to the, the Himalayas, uh, but it's boring, and he falls asleep. Uh, and the other kid says, well, I think I'd like to be uh, so small that a, that a blade of grass looks like a mountain. It makes him really small. What happens to him? His sense of wonder expands, right? He suddenly understands himself as a small part of an enormous whole. Uh, and behind every blade of grass, there's an adventure. Uh, I'm going to submit to you that that's actually a pretty good parable for a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That is somebody who has realized their own smallness in comparison to the enormity of God. M many of us serve a God who's very small. Like we put him in a box and we get him out when we need him. Uh, or we, we think of him uh, as something that we've tamed. But God's not like that, right? The God we serve is vaster than the universe. He's unknowable in many ways. Um, and when you have that perspective on him as beyond the universe, capable of anything, the, the maker of heaven and earth, but somebody who's intensely interested in you personally. Um, it, it's an enormous shift in your perspective, right? When he says, you must decrease, or when John said, I must decrease so he can increase, he meant it, 
Right? Your perspective has to shift and you have to see the, everything around you uh, as the will of a God who controls destiny, who controls fate, and who controls the world. And when you do that, it becomes, it's, it's never easy to not worry. But what are you worried about? What are you worried about? If, if God is truly in control, what are you worried? You're worried, I guess, that when I worry, I worry that things won't look like I think they ought to. Well, who am I? <laughs> right? That's the question I should be asking, right? Like, well, they, if they turn out the way God wants them, then they're in alignment with, with the way they ought to be, right? God, all things work together for good for those who are in Christ Jesus, Amen. right? Let's continue. Uh, well, also, I, I like that Jesus points out that, that worrying is not effective anyway, right? He's like, not only is it dumb, or you know, not only is it not in accordance with the values of the kingdom of heaven, it's not very useful as a practice, right? Can, can, can you add a, a single inch to your height by worrying? Nope. I, I haven't been, I've been very unsuccessful at growing hair by worrying about it. Um, the, the bald spot on the back of my head can attest to that. So let's go to chapter 7. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what treasure, uh, with what measure ye meet, it shall, let me put my glasses on. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine own eye, or out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in mine is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. So let's do one through five first, and then we'll deal with that that verse six. Remember the first week that we talked, uh, we talked a little bit about how this is in some sense a recorded performance, right? Jesus was in a real place at a real time, sitting down on a real mountainside, teaching real people this real lesson, right? And probably hundreds of times at different places, he said some variation of these words, and then Matthew remembered it, uh, or took down scraps of it, or whatever, and assembled it into the Sermon on the Mount. But this is a place where you can see the performance Right, kind of poking up through the text. Because what do you think he did when he said, um, and why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in But What do you think he did? He probably went and got a stick, right? And he probably went, ah, like that. Because um, it's funny, right? It's, it's a joke. It's meant to be this idea that, why do you have a, you have a log in your eye, Get rid of the log in your eye and then go take care of the moat that's in your brother's eye. That's not even the spiritual principle, right? It's just, it's a place where you can kind of see its, its origin as like a performance, right? Coming out in the text. Uh, Jesus was a, a pretty funny guy uh, and we haven't really talked about that much, but um, this is kind of like, like he's a prop comic almost, right? Like he probably went and got a stick and ran around with it. Um, and there are other places where we'll note that he did that. 
or did, probably did something similar. But notice the principle here, right? To make sure your own house is perfectly in order before you presume to judge others. That's hard too, isn't it? It's the hardest, maybe. Uh, it, it goes hand in hand with the enemy love that we talked about. Right? The, your attitude should be one of non-judgment. Uh, doesn't mean you don't discern right and wrong, right? But what it, what it means is that you are uh, centered on your own conformance with uh, and your own relationship with God before you're worrying about others. Verse 7. Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So not, right, it's a collection of sayings, remember that there's not always a logical sort of connection between them. Um, the uh, verse seven to verses seven to eleven, where he's talking about uh, the the father giving gifts, connects back to uh, what he said about um, right, like relying on on God the Father. Right? He says your attitude towards God should be one where you you are you sense His immenseness, right? Sense His generosity, and rely on that. Uh, and then here's the proof, right? Look at your own behavior. If, you, if your children ask for a, um, I forget the examples, uh, if, he, if your son asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? That would be hilarious, but no, because you love your son. Uh, you know, if, you're, if your uh, son asks for um, bread, do you give him a stone? Again, no. Right? The, the idea is you being imperfect, right, know to be generous to your kids you know to give your kids the right things. Don't you think God knows that too? Yeah. Right? That's the implication. Is God's not only way bigger than you, but he's way better than you. And if you know to do the right thing, surely he does. That doesn't mean, right, it doesn't mean that the good thing will be what you think the good thing is. Right? It doesn't mean it'll be what you asked for. But, because right, sometimes, sometimes we're actually asking for a serpent and we think we're asking for a fish. Um, but God will, will not hesitate to give us good things, it says. We, we have to understand that and understand his character and, how, and his nature. Let's continue. Uh, oh, and then uh, in uh, verses 13 and 14, these verses are interesting. He says, enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and there, few there be that find it. So we've been reading this, uh, this sermon for many weeks, or well, you know, three or four weeks now. Um, it's hard to put into practice, right? And, and what Jesus is saying is, there are a lot of people 
who are going to think they're on the right path, but they're not. It's, it's easy to go to your destruction. It's very easy. But the path that leads to salvation is very narrow. And not very many people will find it because it's hard, right? It's hard to get your mindset, right, out of a place where you are, you are seeking your own good and your own promotion uh, and uh, your, own, your own assertion of your rights. Like, that this, you know, we're very caught up, again, in what our rights are, like what we deserve. Um, and Jesus says continually, that's not what the kingdom of heaven is like. You're not to seek your own good, right? You're to seek to glorify the name of the Father. And when you do that, it won't always be a good result in the here and now. And that's why the way is narrow. Verse 15, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, that inwardly, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns? Or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So one thing I want you to notice here, and it's, it's not the main point, but it, it's actually very important. Uh, you will hear many people say, uh, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Um, he never said, people will say this. Um, this is one passage where he very clearly does. He, he's on that day, right, which is code language in the Bible for the day of the Lord, the end of time. He says, I'll be there um, and, and I'll, I'll be deciding who gets in and who doesn't. Um, I, I, I don't know what that is if, if he's not claiming to be God. Um, so that's a, that's, a good, uh, that's a good passage to point to if you ever hear that argument from Jehovah's Witnesses or others, it's a, it's a good proof that Jesus at least uh, considered himself to be, des- to be divine and, and indicated to people, well, no, I'll, I'll be there at the, in the end. Trust me, I'll be there. Um, and when I see you, I'll make a decision uh, about your status. Uh, but let's, let's go back to verse 15 uh, where he starts talking about false prophets. Notice a few things here. One, uh, I, I think the advice is, uh, and I'm going to state this in a general way, what, when I meet people um, and their, their whole gig is that they tear other people down, there's no life there. You, you may feel free to ignore that person. Um, you ever meet anybody who's just like their whole... Their whole business and method of operation is just to tear other people down. Uh, I, um, I read, uh, gosh, I wish I could remember who said it, but uh, uh, it's great people think about ideas or talk about ideas, 
uh, impoverished people talk about people, right? When you meet with somebody and, and all they have to do is tear other people down, there isn't any life in them. Um, and I, I uh, like as an example, my, uh, my son watches a lot of YouTube videos uh, that are about theology and, and uh, the Bible, and, uh, which I encourage, obviously. Um, but some of the folks he watches are all about like, this person's a heretic, right? And they'll go through and list, you know, 48 reasons Stephen Furtick's a heretic. You know, that, that you know, he found out he was a heretic. You won't believe what he did next. You know, all, all, this, uh, all this kind of stuff. And um, I didn't tell him not to watch it because uh, then he'll go, you know, watch Roblox videos or something. Um, but I said, you know, when somebody does that, that means they don't have anything to say for themselves. I, you know, it, it, when that's their whole thing, that is, it's dead. It is devoid of life. Find somebody who talks about the Bible. Find somebody who talks about ministering to, to, to the body. Find, some, find somebody who lifts weights. That's, that's more productive than listening to somebody tear other people down. Um... And that's what I see Jesus saying here, uh, is there are going to be a lot of people, and those people will present themselves uh, as Christ followers, as leaders, right? But what they are, are wolves in sheep's clothing, right? Their, their, uh, their whole business is to tear others down. And then he says, by your fruit, you'll know them, right? You, you will know that they are good or bad by the fruit that they bear. Uh, and I you know, I can tell you, I, I, I don't believe that the kind of ministry that, that looks for people to tear down and then tears them down, there's much fruit. I mean, maybe they get a lot of YouTube, maybe they get a lot of social media hits, or maybe they make money, I don't know. Um, but I can tell you, there, there's, no, there, there's no God-given life there that produces the fruit of the kingdom. I, I, I can guarantee you. Um, that people are not getting saved through those ministries. They're, they're becoming bitter, they're becoming judgmental, they're becoming uh, ever more entwined in negativity, um, and that's not good. Uh, and that's, that, I mean, we live in an age of social media, so all this stuff is, right, uh, foot to the gas all the time. But this is true in, a, in, like in our church, right? Like with, if you talk to somebody in our church and they're just continually negative all the time, that, you know, Tony said this, and he got up there and he wasn't wearing a tie, and, you know, like, they took the pews out, whatever. Um, trust me, I, I've been here for a while, uh, and I've been a deacon for about 10 years, uh, and people come to you to, to complain, uh, and I, I nod, and I say, well, let's pray about that then, uh, and they rarely take me up on it, because uh, people want to complain. They want to tear others down, um, and when you meet somebody like that, it's, it's just death. They are just dead inside. Um, so I would, I would encourage you to run as if you were running from a wolf uh, when you meet someone who has that attitude. All right? And, and then, I mean, the, the verse 20, when I get to heaven, I'll be able to see without glasses. Um, in verse 22... Uh, that should scare people, right? There are people out there right now thinking that they are acting in alignment 
right? I bet you if you talk to these guys who run these channels or, or folks who complain about whatever, that they think, right, that they are, are operating in Christ's name. They think that they're doing the Lord's work. We're told right here, right? The Lord, there will be people like that that the Lord sees on the last day. And he says, I don't, nope, I don't know you, sorry. Uh, you know, Lord, <laughs> uh, Lord, didn't I own many liberals in your name? Or whatever, right? No, you didn't. It, you, you did it for yourself. Uh, and you thought you were doing it for the Lord. Verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as, as one having authority and not as the scribes, that is the Pharisees. Um, so a couple things there. One, notice what they observe. They say, man, this, this guy speaks with authority. He doesn't speak like the Pharisees do. The Pharisees are the guys who they want to follow every, every jot and tittle of the law everything that's in it um, and they want to follow the rules but they don't want to understand what's behind the rules these are the people that Jesus will confront later uh, and he'll they'll say uh, well we'll read it next week but um, these are the folks that Jesus will confront and and he'll say y you follow the law but you don't understand like the purpose of it uh, these are the folks who back in the days of Isaiah they would have followed every observance of the sacrifices, of, um, of the rituals that they were supposed to do, and God would have turned his back on them and said, your heart's not in it, right? Your heart's not in it. In, in our world, the Pharisees are actually, the, I mean, they're kind of the good guys, right? They're, they're at least trying to follow the law. They're trying to understand it and trying to do what it says. But Jesus says, what you're doing is empty. Because you, you don't understand what's behind it. And you don't understand where to, where to make an exception, where to, uh, where to understand the spirit of the law and not its, not its letter. Um, so stepping back, sorry. Um, he compares, right, the, the two houses or the, the two builders. Um, and this is just a way of saying if you understand and if you read and understand the content before this or hear and listen and understand and commit to, to living out the life that's described here, your house will be or your life will be built on an unshakable foundation. And if you don't, it'll be shifting all the time. Uh, I've read the Sermon on the Mount probably, I don't know, 40 times over the course of the last six months uh, as I was preparing for a class and then as I was doing this series, I find something new in it every time. Every time. It, it's the core of what we believe. Uh, I would encourage you to keep reading it because every time you do, you're building a foundation, right? You're, you're listening 
to his words and, and committing to execute them. And when you do that, uh, you're building a foundation for a life that matters. And when you, if you read it and you reject it, which I w- wouldn't encourage, uh, you're, you're building your life uh, upon something that shifts and changes and will come to nothing. Nothing.